Chapter Twenty Eight of the Old Curiosity Shop. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Old Curiosity Shop by Charles Dickens. Chapter Twenty Eight. Sleep hung upon the eyelids of the child so long that when she awoke. Mrs. Jolly was already decorated with her large bonnet, and actively engaged in preparing breakfast. She received Nell's apology for being so late with perfect good humour, and said that she should not have roused her if she had slept on until noon. "'Because it does you good,' said the lady of the caravan, "'when you are tired, to sleep as long as ever you can, and get the fatigue quite off, and that's another blessing of your time of life, you can sleep so very sound.' "'Have you had a bad night, ma'am?' asked Nell. "'I seldom have anything else, child,' replied Mrs. Jolly, with the air of a martyr. "'I sometimes wonder how I bear it.' Remembering the snores which had proceeded from that cleft in the caravan in which the proprietress of the wax-work passed the night, Nell rather thought she must have been dreaming of lying awake. However, she expressed herself very sorry to hear such a dismal account of her state of health, and shortly afterwards sat down with her grandfather and Mrs. Jarley to breakfast. The meal finished, Nell assisted to wash the cups and saucers and put them in their proper places, and these household duties performed, Mrs. Jarley arrayed herself in an exceedingly bright shawl for the purpose of making a progress through the streets of the town. "'The one will come on to bring the boxes,' said Mrs. Jarley, "'and you had better come in it, child. I am obliged to walk,' very much against my will, but the people expect it of me, and public characters can't be their own masters and mistresses in such matters as these. How do I look, child? Nell returned a satisfactory reply, and Mrs. Jolly, after sticking a great many pins into various parts of her figure, and making several abortive attempts to obtain a full view of her own back, was at last satisfied with her appearance, and went forth majestically. The caravan followed at no great distance. As it went jolting through the streets, Nell peeped from the window, curious to see in what kind of place they were, and yet fearful of encountering at every turn the dreaded face of Quilp. It was a pretty large town, with an open square which they were crawling slowly across, and in the middle of which was the town hall, with a clock tower and a weathercock. There were houses of stone, houses of red brick, houses of yellow brick, houses of lath and plaster, and houses of wood, many of them very old, with withered faces carved upon the beams, and staring down into the street. These had very little winking windows, and low-arched doors, and in some of the narrower ways quite overhung the pavement. The streets were very clean, very sunny, very empty, and very dull. A few idle men lounged about the two inns, and the empty market-place, and the tradesmen's doors, and some old people were dozing in chairs outside an almshouse wall, but scarcely any passengers who seemed bent on going anywhere, or to have any object in view, went by. And if perchance some straggler did, his footsteps echoed on the hot bright pavement for minutes afterwards. Nothing seemed to be going on but the clocks, and they had such drowsy faces, such heavy, lazy hands, and such cracked voices, that they surely must have been too slow. 
the very dogs were all asleep, and the flies, drunk with moist sugar in the grocer's shop, forgot their wings and briskness, and baked to death in dusty corners of the window. Rambling along with most unwonted noise, the caravan stopped at last at the place of exhibition, where Nell dismounted amidst an admiring group of children, who evidently supposed her to be an important item of the curiosities, and were fully impressed with the belief that her grandfather was a cunning device in wax. The chests were taken out with all convenient dispatch, and taken in to be unlocked by Mrs. Jarley, who, attended by George and another man in velveteen shorts, and a drab hat ornamented with turnpike tickets, were waiting to dispose their contents, consisting of red festoons and other ornamental devices in upholstery work, to the best advantage in the decoration of the room. They all got to work without loss of time, and very busy they were. As the stupendous collection were yet concealed by clothes, lest the envious dust should injure their complexions, Nell bestirred herself to assist in the embellishment of the room, in which her grandfather also was of great service. The two men, being well used to it, did a great deal in a short time, and Mrs. Jarley served out the tin tacks from a linen pocket like a tall collector's, which she wore for the purpose, and encouraged her assistance to renewed exertion. While they were thus employed, a tallish gentleman with a hook nose and black hair, dressed in a military suit too very short and tight in the sleeves, and which had once been frogged and braided all over, but was now sadly shorn of its garniture and quite threadbare, dressed too in an Asian grey pantaloons fitting tight to the leg, and a pair of pumps in the winter of their existence, looked in at the door and smiled affably. Mrs. Jarley's back being then towards him, the military gentleman shook his forefinger as a sign that her myrmidons were not to apprise her of his presence, and stealing up close behind her, tapped her on the neck, and cried playfully, "'Boh!' "'What, Mr. Slum?' cried the lady of the waxwork. "'Lot! Who'd have thought of seeing you here?' "'Pon my soul and honour, said Mr. Slum. "'That's a good remark. "'Pon my soul and honour, that's a wise remark. "'Who would have thought it? "'George, my faithful feller, how are you?' "'George received this advance with a surly indifference, "'observing that he was well enough for the matter of that, "'and hammering lustily all the time. "'I came here,' said the military gentleman, "'turning to Mrs. Jolly. "'Pon my soul and honour, I hardly know what I came here for. "'It would puzzle me to tell you, it would by God.' I wanted a little inspiration, a little freshening up, a little change of ideas, and, upon my soul and honour, said the military gentleman, checking himself and looking round the room, what a devilish classical thing this is, by God, it's quite Minervian. It'll look well enough when it comes to be finished, observed Mrs. Jolly. Well enough, said Mr. Slum. Would you believe me when I say tis the delight of my life to have dabbed in poetry, when I think I've exercised my pen upon this charming theme? By the way, any orders? Is there any little thing I can do for you? It comes so very expensive, sir, replied Mrs. Jolly, and I really don't think it does much good. Hush, no, no, returned Mr. Slum, elevating his hand. No fibs, I'll not hear it. Don't say it don't do good, don't say it. I know better. I don't think it does, said Mrs. Jarley. Ha, <laughs> ha, cried Mr. Slum. You're giving way, you're coming down. 
Ask the perfumers, ask the blacking makers, ask the hatters, ask the old lottery office keepers, ask any man among them what my poetry has done for him. And mark my words, he blesses the name of Slum. If he is an honest man, he raises his eyes to heaven and blesses the name of Slum. Mark that. You are acquainted with Westminster Abbey, Mrs. Jolly? Yes, surely. Then upon my soul and honour, ma'am, you'll find in a certain angle of that dreary pile, called Poet's Corner, a few smaller names than Slum, retorted that gentleman, tapping himself expressively on the forehead to imply that there was some slight quantity of brain behind it. I've got a little trifle here now, said Mr. Slum, taking off his hat, which was full of scraps of paper. A little trifle here, thrown off in the heat of the moment, which I should say was exactly the thing you wanted to set this place on fire with. It's an acrostic. The name at this moment is Warren, and the idea is a convertible one, and a positive inspiration for Jarley. Have the acrostic. I suppose it's very dear, said Mrs. Jarley. Five shillings, returned Mr. Slum, using his pencil as a toothpick. Cheaper than any prose. I couldn't give more than three, said Mrs. Jarley. And six, retorted Slum. Come, three and six. Mrs. Jarley was not proof against the poet's insinuating manner, and Mr. Slum entered the order in a small notebook as a three and sixpenny one. Mr. Slum then withdrew to alter the acrostic, after taking a most affectionate leave of his patroness, and promising to return as soon as he possibly could, with a fair copy for the printer. As his presence had not interfered with or interrupted the preparations, they were now far advanced, and were completed shortly after his departure. When the festoons were all put up as tastily as they might be, the stupendous collection was uncovered, and there were displayed, on a raised platform some two feet from the floor, running round the room and parted from the rude public by a crimson rope breast-high, diverse sprightly effigies of celebrated characters, singly and in groups, clad in glittering dresses of various climes and times, and standing more or less unsteadily upon their legs, with their eyes very wide open, and their nostrils very much inflated, and the muscles of their legs and arms very strongly developed, and all their countenances expressing great surprise. All the gentlemen were very pigeon-breasted and very blue about the beards, and all the ladies were miraculous figures and all the ladies and all the gentlemen were looking intensely nowhere, and staring with extraordinary earnestness at nothing. When Nell had exhausted her first raptures at this glorious sight, Mrs. Jarley ordered the room to be cleared of all but herself and the child, and, sitting herself down in an armchair in the centre, formally invested Nell with a willow wand, long used by herself for pointing out the characters, and was at great pains to instruct her in her duty. That, said Mrs. Jarley in her exhibition tone, as Nell touched a figure at the beginning of the platform, is an unfortunate maid of honour in the time of Queen Elizabeth, who died from pricking her finger in consequence of working upon a Sunday. Observe the blood which is trickling from her finger, also the gold-eyed needle of the period, with which she is at work. All this, Nell repeated twice or thrice, pointing to the finger and the needle at the right times, and then passed on to the next. That, ladies and gentlemen, said Mrs. Jarley, is Jasper Packlemerton of atrocious memory, 
who courted and married fourteen wives, and destroyed them all by tickling the soles of their feet when they were sleeping in the consciousness of innocence and virtue. On being brought to the scaffold and asked if he was sorry for what he had done, he replied, yes, he was sorry for having let him off so easy, and hoped all Christian husbands would pardon him the offence. Let this be a warning to all young ladies to be particular in the character of the gentleman of their choice. Observe that his fingers are curled as if in the act of tickling, and that his face is represented with a wink as he appeared when committing his barbarous murders. When Nell knew all about Mr. Packlemerton, and could say it without faltering, Mrs. Jarley passed on to the fat man, and then to the thin man, the tall man, the short man, the old lady who died of dancing at a hundred and thirty-two, the wild boy of the woods, the woman who poisoned fourteen families with pickled walnuts, and other historical characters and interesting but misguided individuals. And so well did Nell profit by her instructions, and so apt was she to remember them, that by the time they had been shut up together for a couple of hours, she was in full possession of the history of the whole establishment, and perfectly competent to the enlightenment of visitors. Mrs. Jarley was not slow to express her admiration at this happy result, and carried her young friend and pupil to inspect the remaining arrangements within doors, by virtue of which the passage had been already converted into a grove of green base, hung with the inscription she had already seen, Mr. Slum's Productions, and a highly ornamented table placed at the upper end for Mrs. Jarley herself, at which she was to preside and take the money, in company with His Majesty King George the Third, Mr. Grimaldi as clown, Mary Queen of Scots, an anonymous gentleman of the Quaker persuasion, and Mr. Pitt holding in his hand a correct model of the bill for the imposition of the window duty. The preparations without doors had not been neglected either. A nun of great personal attractions was telling her beads on the little portico over the door, and a brigand with the blackest possible head of hair and the clearest possible complexion was at that moment going round the town in a cart, consulting the miniature of a lady. It now only remained that Mr. Slum's compositions should be judiciously distributed, that the pathetic effusions should find their way to all private houses and tradespeople, and that the parody commencing, If I knowed a donkey, should be confined to the taverns, and circulated only among the lawyers' clerks and choice spirits of the place. When this had been done, and Mrs. Jarley had waited upon the boarding-schools in person, with a handbill composed expressly for them, in which it was distinctly proved that wax-work refined the mind, cultivated the taste, and enlarged the sphere of the human understanding. That indefatigable lady sat down to dinner, and drank out of the suspicious bottle to a flourishing campaign. End of chapter 28